Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 137th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lou Tranquilli. Lou is the founder of Tranquilli Financial Advisor, an independent RA based in Clinton, New Jersey, that oversees more than 100 million of assets under management for 110 clients. What's unique about Lou, though, is the way his advisory firm has evolved over more than 25 years across every channel of the industry, having started out as a traditional life insurance sales agent, shifted to the broker-dealer model, then becoming a hybrid RIA, and now making one more recent transition to the independent RIA channel. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Lou structured his independent RIA as an experienced practitioner, from why he chose Trust Company of America as his custodian rather than one of the traditional big four custodians, the way he brought together an integrated technology stack built around his custodian, and how despite criticisms that solo advisors will need more size and economies of scale to compete, the increased efficiency of technology to support his solo RIA over his prior broker-dealer actually allowed him to reduce his staff support and increase his profit margins after making the transition. We also talk about Lou's journey through the industry itself, from starting out as a traditional life insurance agent in the the 1990s and embracing the sales job, even making top of the table with MDRT, to deciding to walk away from the insurance sales job after a decade of tiring of the environment where, as Lou puts it, you're out of business every minute, you're not calling somebody, and walk away from his insurance renewals in order to transition to a recurring revenue AUM model that would allow him to focus more on serving existing clients. How Lou hired a marketing director to help him craft and then focus into a niche and triple his firm in under four years, and the way he's sought out confidants and a study group to get ongoing feedback and guidance from peers on how to continue to refine his business. And be starting to listen to the end, where Lou explains how despite the fact that he's always been focused on trying to help clients solve their problems, his own advice role and the services he provided were impacted and materially different as he switched from one industry channel to another. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lou Tranquilli. Welcome, Lou Tranquilli, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm looking forward to the podcast discussion today because you you have this career that to me is kind of the the quintessential career of the experienced advisor. That you started out in the insurance realm, then you were in the broker dealer realm for a while, then you were a hybrid for a while. Now you've gone to an independent RIA, and you know we I think we talk sometimes in the industry about this evolution of advisors from products to advice and as the channels have converged and you know we all know about the growth in the RA channel but like you have actually lived it sort of every step along the way and building businesses in each stage along the way over you know 25 odd years and so I'm I'm excited today just to talk about kind of the 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 evolution of the advisory business as someone who's actually literally lived each stage of the evolution of the advisory business. I'm excited to do it. And I, I really appreciate the invitation because it's it's enjoyable to talk about. And it's, it's always good to reflect on it and hopefully look forward, of course. 
to the next 25 odd years. Absolutely. So I think to start out, like, let's start by painting a little bit of a picture of where things stand today. And then we can talk about just the the journey and all the you know trials and tribulations of getting from from there to here. So tell us a little bit about the advisory firm that you have as it exists today. Oh, sure. So recently left the what would be considered, I think, a hybrid broker dealer world or the hybrid world and uh, started my own RIA October 5th of 2018. Of course, there was plenty of preparation that went, went into getting to that date. But the just managed manage just over $100 million of assets, about 110 clients, uh, advisory clients, and really just focused on, I, I focused on some niche markets along the way, but also came out of a general practice. So as it stands right now, I work, and I think this is part of the evolution as well. I have an office that I own in beautiful Clinton, New Jersey, and it's, it's a great office that uh, I am in with an intern for the summer. I have now a virtual assistant located in Ohio, and that is the makeup of my office at this point, which is very different than I thought it was going to be just a few short months ago. But with technology and the, the proper, I think, implementation of technology, stands as me in the office with an intern currently, and we'll bring someone else in and, uh, and a virtual assistant in Ohio. So I'm curious there just particularly said this, like, this isn't what you expected. So I'm I'm cognizant you when you're making this transition from broker-dealer world and standing up your own firm and, and kind of walking away from a lot of the infrastructure that's at the broker-dealer, like, you have all these choices of what technology you're going to use and what office do you want to be in and, and, and more significantly, perhaps, like, what staff do you want and what staff do you need and what structure are you going to, to need in order to do this? So it sounds like even what you were expecting – you call it like nine to 12 months ago when you were brainstorming, okay, I'm going to make this shift from broker dealer to RIA versus what it's actually become was was not what you expected. So what what were you imagining it was going to be when you were doing your business planning of making this shift? Well, the bottom line is I thought it meant more people, Michael, because in looking at the broker dealer world and the uh, the, I'll say, inefficiency of of how I needed to operate was working in a way that I, I only use third-party money managers as an advisor. So each each third-party money manager I would I would incorporate into a client's account, I would have paperwork for that money manager, I would have paperwork for the broker-dealer, and I would have paperwork for the custodian. There were so many people involved in the relationship, I thought – I thought that's what I was supposed to have, that I was supposed to bring those people into my office and make sure that I could process all of this this paperwork and these documents and then store them somewhere and make sure compliance was taken care of. So I thought I was going to have to staff up and in, and in making the, the, the change and again, implementing the technology, I think properly to date, it, it, it opened my eyes to the to the fact that the efficiency can be there, you just have to sit down and really think it through. Interesting. So you figure just the amount of paperwork that you live with on the broker-dealer side to handle account openings, account transfers, engaging third-party money managers and the rest, You know, broker-dealer obviously has some infrastructure to support that. So, hey, if you're going to go out on your own, you still have all the paperwork, you don't have all the broker-dealer infrastructure, so you're going to have to hire yourself some staff. And then instead, like, you didn't? I mean, what like what was the technology that's so different where you are from where you were that suddenly made this staff need 
disappear. Sure. And I, and I won't say it disappeared, Michael, but I will say it's, it's significantly reduced. So yeah, I had, a hire, I had hired a few people. And I, so I had hired a few people and had them in the office, a compliance officer. I had the client coordinator, and I also had marketing person in the office. So I brought them all in with the intent of growth, which I still intend to grow, of course. Had everybody's role. I felt like they were defined. They were well-defined. Got into the process of of processing, of, of client meetings, of paperwork, of just running the business day-to-day kind of. And I, and I do have a business manager. That's someone who's also a part of the, uh, the equation here. So in getting into the process of working through Redtail, working through I use copy talk for notes. Uh, I've got riskalyzed. Isn't necessarily completely automated from from the standpoint of risk questionnaires, but easy enough to send an email out to someone. The key, Michael, for me, I chose to go with uh, Trust Company of America as the as the custodian. Uh, I interviewed. I would tell you that I interviewed everyone, and just as the process was finishing up, interview wise. I made that decision to go with Trust Company of America because of their technology. Well, just as I was wrapping up, E-Trade purchased them. And that really, it was a moment of pause because I've been through some sales and you said, we'll get back to the beginning of the, the, the career and we will, but been through some sales of insurance companies that I worked with. And it never really worked out awesome, I'll say, for for me, tranquilly. Okay, that's all there is to it. So I was nervous about that. However, uh, after a very good meeting with uh, with the people that are in charge at uh, E Trade Advisor Services, I continued on the path. It was the it was the key to the key to the kingdom, if you will, in that their technology is doing everything they they let they said it would do. They're able to. They're so efficient. Uh, now it may not sound like a big deal to others, but it's an enormous deal to me. I was promised DocuSign and the ability to open up accounts through DocuSign for the longest time as part of broker dealers and and that world. It just didn't happen. And it couldn't happen because of the fact that I was working with so many different custodians and and so many different money managers because I felt like that was the right thing to do for clients in allocating. So I, I couldn't make it happen. Well, now it does happen. So what used to be, uh, and I'm, I'm making, <laughs> if you can imagine, I've got my hands separated by about three or four inches of, of paperwork stacked up, uh, doesn't exist any longer. And it's the few clicks of a mouse and a DocuSign email delivered to a client. So that, that DocuSign electronic-based account opening process at TCA was kind of what sealed the deal for you, and, and they're actually delivering on it? They are delivering on it, yes. Are you literally down to zero paper? Like, is there still a few things that you've got a wedding signature and move around? Or are they really at the point of just, it's all electronically queued up and DocuSigned out and then up to the custodian to get going? The only paperwork I have printed out, we're in July here. So the only paperwork I have printed out in the last three months, Michael, is for someone that doesn't have an email address. Okay, that's it. <laughs> okay, that, that would still be the one caveat to the DocuSign electronic signature clients. So yes, the answer is yes. It wrapped it all together. I left Right Capital out as the, the the planning software that I use as well. It integrates with with E-Trade. So all of these pieces have synced because the custodian is able to do it. And it's significantly reduced the need for someone 
delivering paperwork to the end client, there's just really, really no other way to put it. And then suddenly you don't actually need a staff member to be a coordinator on this paperwork that doesn't actually happen because it's all electronic and e-signed. A correct. And, and, and downloaded into Redtail imaging, I don't print anything out at this point. It's, uh, it's rather remarkable. Well, and, and I'm noticing that you know a, a lot of the tools you have here are, are kind of tightly integrated to each other as well. I believe uh, like Copy Top lets you do mobile transcriptions, and I believe can automatically link all of those notes directly into Redtail. That is correct. That's exactly right. And then Redtail integrates to our company America and Right Capital is is integrating, I guess, account aggregation information from from Trust Company of America. So you've got all these technology pieces that are linking to each other. That is correct. It, it is it, it, It's as if one day the sun came up, Michael. <laughs> the sun came up and it all fit together beautifully. And, and it just, it reduced the need for this staffing up. Now, I, admittedly, I, I'm, I'm looking to staff up at some point because I want to continue to grow this. And you and I have talked about some of the, the people that I've worked with and, and I'll bring them up, I guess, a little bit later in the conversation that, that I've worked with in conversation. And uh, you've, you've met them, you know them through the, the business that have talked about building the business and how to build it correctly. And I've paid attention to a lot of people along the way. I, I've also not paid a lot of, uh, uh, not paid attention to a lot of people, which has only slowed me down. But I've got a lot of really great people that have been behind me along the way. But right now, the staffing, I am, I'm excited about the virtual assistant or a remote assistant. I'm excited about person that I'll bring in the office here that will be part-time. It, it's really, it's great to just be connected to the clients directly because I have freed up hours of my time during the day with the implementation or an integration of the technology. And out of curiosity, where did the virtual assistant come from? Like how to, how did you find a random person in Ohio to do your virtual assistant work? Is this a uh, like a firm that does the outsourcing or a personal connection or? Uh, well, that is a great question. So how I, I, I became frustrated, Michael, that's the best way. <laughs> and, and instead of getting angry. Up a signal flare and they saw it in Ohio. I did. I launched up a flare and I thought, uh, you know, angry moment. And I, I, yeah, I became angry, uh, not angry, frustrated because of this. I, I did have some staffing issues and admittedly I didn't, do the greatest job always of hiring. Uh, it was a it was a challenge for me. I've seemed to to hit on a good streak of interns, but the the staff itself has been challenged. And I've spoken to professionals, many some really great people that I know and want to bring up as part of this. But the the fact is that I just I struggled with the staff because I was trying to create a a position in an office where uh, it was comfortable. It was it was. I'll say relaxed, and but it was very professional. So in, in doing so, I also think maybe I gave the wrong impression along the way uh, of hiring. So anyway, I became frustrated with the staff and 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 I'll say the lack of being here on a consistent basis as I expect them to do. So I did a very simple thing. I searched the internet for remote assistance. And I do want to, um, Susan Chesney, uh, who is a CFP, in Colorado, I just happened to land on her page and had a conversation with her. She just mentioned working with remote assistants as a CFP. 
I reached out to her, which is something I do all the time, and we can get to that later. But so I reached out to her, and I I found this really professional group of virtual or remote assistants, and I think we as advisors could take a lesson from this group of people. There were the first two I contacted, Michael couldn't take the time to work with me. They were they were they were at capacity. However, they said, but we know someone really great that you can work with. And here they are. So no competition, if you will, just interesting. So so you started with I guess Sue Chesney's delegated planning services and then like they referred you to someone else that could be that could be a virtual assistant because they didn't have capacity at the time. That's correct. That's exactly right. So I ran into this group of virtual assistants and they referred me, if you will, down the line until I landed with uh, FSOS, which is Stephanie Platt and her husband, David. Really, really excited for that that next part of, of staffing, if you will. Interesting. And, and FSOS is also, I think, focused specifically in the industry, financial services outsourcing solutions. That is correct. And that, that was something that was important. That was important to me in that uh, I wanted someone very focused on the financial uh, the, the financial advisor planning industry. You wouldn't. You didn't want to have to explain all this stuff about you know. Here's how our regulated industry works, and here's the certain things you can do and you are not allowed to do. And correct. That is correct. Okay. All right. Very cool. And and uh, for folks that are listening, you know, we'll have links to all of this out in the show notes if you want to find your own virtual assistant through one of the one of the teams here. So this is episode 137. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 137, we'll have links out for uh, delegated planning and FSOS and and uh, and some of the rest. So so it sounds like for you, the the drive for virtual assistant was, was a little bit different. It wasn't just a matter of, hey, I want to hire someone, but I only need someone part-time and I don't want to have to deal with office space. Like, let me find me a virtual assistant. It was. It sounds like it was more of, I've tried to hire people. It doesn't always go well. Why don't I just find a firm whose job is to do this for advisors like me for however many hours I need, and they can deal with all the rest of the stuff. I'm just going to hire their firm, and then I don't have to deal with the uh, hire the people and manage the people and the rest. They can do that because they're they're my contractor now. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, it's uh, so far so good. We're 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 just getting started, but I'd love to come back someday and and give you an update on it. But it is it is a relief that. And I jokingly say, but but you know, I don't get a dog eat my homework. Car didn't start. It's really cold outside. Uh, I got tickets to the Kenny Chesney concert. I'm not hearing any of that kind of thing. And so, so you started with, you know, a client coordinator, but you kind of backed off to this virtual assistant role. You also mentioned that you launched with a compliance officer. So has that also changed now? Because I know for a lot of folks particularly transitioning from broker-dealer to independent, this murkiness of like, so what's compliance really like when I have to do this stuff and I'm you know, my own compliance officer because I don't have the broker-dealer's compliance expertise? Like, help us understand, like, what, what did you launch with and where is it now? That's a great question. So I did launch with, with a compliance officer, go, stepping back, going through the process of dis- making the decision to go to an RIA or become an RIA, I apologize. So becoming an RIA, I really felt strongly that a compliance person was an important role for me, again, with the impression that I had to staff up 
and 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 find this person that could really run that part of the business because it is it's always been such a fearful endeavor of, of dealing with compliance. So I I I did launch that way. Hired someone to project manage, uh, which I cannot recommend enough. Someone else project manage the process of becoming an RIA, and she project managed the the move along with the compliance portion of it. Launched with her, but then got into the process of actually going through compliance. And I hired market counsel uh, to write the documents, the the IAM agreement, uh, along with uh, with all the other documents to form the the entities uh, that are involved with Tranquility Financial Advisor. So uh, I hired the market counsel to do that work, and then took the compliance software that they have and just on my calendar on Redtail, put a reminder of when certain things needed to happen. So now, uh, come the end of the quarter, I have to ask whomever it is that's working for me or with me that I need their I need their compliance documents. I send an email out, they send them back, I complete it. It's 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 time consuming is really what it comes down to. And it's not something that I will will continue on with forever. However, uh, with the with the integration of E-Trade and their capability to deliver 13F reports and, and client information in mass through Excel spreadsheets that can go to the SEC when, when I have those requests, I just felt comfortable that, that it's something that I could and wanted to learn. And that's part of who I am in this journey as well, is I constantly want to learn. So before I go back and bring I'll say it'll likely be an outside firm or someone that's working with me and can handle parts of the compliance role. I want to I want to understand it, the mechanics of it better before I then go out and seek someone to take that role or a large portion of that role away from me. But it sounds like ultimately, even though it 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 takes well, I guess let me ask like how how many hours a, a week or hours a month do you find yourself spending on on these compliance tasks compliance stuff now about two a month two a month so okay so you you, you hire with full-time person then have this realization like oh thanks to market council software and its integrations with redtail like i have a full-time person i can do this work in two hours a month like probably don't need a full-time person on this anymore correct that's exactly right so I guess that means the other interesting kind of news and effect from this transition, like does this effectively mean you are now way more profitable than you'd expected to be in making the transition because you thought you were going to need these three plus staff members and now you've ended out with, you know, you didn't need the compliance uh, officer, you've kind of scaled back and partial virtual assistanted the the client coordinator and like just the raw staff overhead has ended out much leaner than originally projected. Much leaner, uh, I will say for now. But the answer is yes, Michael. I, 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 that's that's an easy answer from the standpoint of sure, and it, it's had a positive impact. And and I really, uh, I, I think anyone listening to this, and I, I know there are many people like myself that wait for the the link to show up. If you're a, if you're a half a billion dollar office, if you're a billion dollar, if you're bigger than that, I, I really believe these pieces that I'm working with apply uh, because I plan on getting there. And I believe the pieces and what I've learned and sharing it with you and, and with everyone listening, I think it's relevant to to all of those 
those different levels that you get to, it's it's a it's a review, if you will, and a and the the willingness to personally, if you will, agitate yourself to stir to stir it up that I can learn this and I want to learn this and I think in learning it, I'm better today than I was even six months ago because I do have a deeper knowledge of of what it means to be compliant. And and so the other thing I've got to ask about this kind of standing up and going on your own as a as an RIA is just talk to us a little bit more about the decision to pick Trust Company of America. I think most people are breaking out these days, tend to end up talking to what's basically like known as the big four, Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Pershing Advisor Solutions, all talk a talk about we've got lots of technology and you know we're increasingly going digital and all this stuff. Like I feel like lots of folks say this, some maybe deliver on it a little bit better than others, but what was it about the the conversation with TCA or what they you know, said or did or showed you that took you there and not one of the big four? Well, and I interviewed the big four. Uh, now, it, it, my former uh, broker-dealer relationship, the hybrid broker-dealer, they were, they were a Pershing office. Okay. As are, as are most BDs, per- Pershing or Fidelity's clearing. So, yep. All right. So, I, I had some, some knowledge about working with Pershing uh, and a great, great organization. But my, my knowledge came down to this. I knew I wasn't big enough for them. Okay. That's really what it came down to. I, I know they, they really like billion dollar plus offices and I respect that. Uh, they know what their market is and they know, they know what they, where they want to be. Yep. Since, since Mark Tiburgian took over, they really said like, we're, we're going after the large professionally managed firms, either they're billion dollars or they're, getting there pretty quickly with all the, you know, multi-advisor ensemble infrastructure to do and build that direction. And I, you know, as I said, like I, as you said, they, they knew who they're going after. They're, they're serving that market, you know, more power to them. But yeah, I get it. If you're uh, breaking away with a hundred million dollars, which is still a fantastic number and a hell of a living, but that's, that's not Pershing's sweet spot right now on the, on advisor solutions. That is correct. So uh, it was, I talked with a few uh, Schwab, and, and I don't mean to disparage anyone. Schwab's a great company, nice people, everything else. I spoke with a few reps that worked through them, through the RIA channel. It was a mixed review. TD Ameritrade, uh, I, did, I did receive a really great uh, feedback from TD Ameritrade. What happened there was the the change in their offering of the ETFs, and, I, and I'm just going out of, of memory, just as I was making the decision, and I and I just thought, oh boy, this is this is leverage. And again, back to having been through the the, the sale or or uh, through the business for a long time, through twenty seven years, and seeing the changes, that was just the use of their leverage. Of, I'll say against the the advisors, in my opinion, that's what it looked like, or my view, that's what it looked like. And the conversation and the positive side of this is the conversations with, with then TCA, now E-Trade Advisor, the conversation with them was really, uh, it was in their office. It was very professional. However, it, it, it had a level of comfort, which is the way I like to work with clients, which is very professionally. However, with a, a conversation around everything, the personal, the professional planning side of things, uh, it suited me. And and I really believed in their technology as well. They 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 illustrated their technology to me. I thought, 
uh, in a better way than than the others and and the capabilities of integrating with right capital i've worked with e-money as well with riskalyze with redtail and and once they put those pieces together in front of me and explained how they really can make this work or that i'll say the the office work of being a financial advisor smooth and efficient and and out of curiosity only cuz you said you know you you spoke to Pershing, you spoke to Schwab, you spoke to TDA. Was Fidelity on the radar screen as well? Were you talking to them too? I did not speak with Fidelity. And that that actually was due to the fact that I had interactions over the course of the years and it didn't it it didn't just didn't work for me. That's all. Okay. You know, it's it's one of the interesting things about the like the, the business of being a vendor to advisors. Uh, you know, we're all in the relationship business, right? I mean, it's what we do with our clients. We try to establish and form these really long relationships with clients where we work with people for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, the funny thing about relationships is like when you're in a relationship with someone and, and they slight you, you don't forget that stuff for a really long time. Did somebody tell you I'm Italian? Is that, is that what it was? no i i think it's a fairly universal phenomenon um like this relationship focus that we have with clients you know i think we tend to expect the same thing from our from our vendors and so uh, you know hey i had some bad experiences with that firm x years ago like it carries forward or you know hey tda changed up their ntf etf platform i don't trust that they're not going to sell out their advisors again like i just don't want to go near them like that, that stuff has such huge and lasting impact. You know, I was giggling that a few weeks ago that the the news, like the rumor, hit uh, that Vanguard might some point go into the into the RA custody business, uh, which they were actually in and did like back in the late nineties and, and early two thousands. And as soon as the news hit that you know Vanguard might go into the custody business. Out came all these people that said, well, you know, I worked with Vanguard Custody and they left me high and dry in 2003, so I don't trust them. And like, it's like 16 years ago. I mean, I I get it. I'm wary about that stuff too. Like, it's kind of a different company now than it was 16 years ago. I think there is this interesting phenomenon in the in the advisor community that when you, you know, when you're in a business where people trust over you know multi-decade periods of time it means they also remember what you did 10 and 20 years ago and that stuff lasts with you and and it it strikes me because not to me not not all the vendors in our space i think sometimes are mindful that like hey that you know marketing initiative or that pr statement that you made that sounded good right now but you know you'll probably change it in a few years like advisors will hold that against you for the rest of their careers. Like we just don't forget this stuff because I think we get, I think we get really sensitive to it because we're in such long-term relationship businesses. Without our, our work as professional designations, everything that you want, all the layers, the names that you want to add on comes down to long-term trust. And we have to be able to trust. So so interesting. So you made this transition to RIA. It is well, it, uh, not nearly as staff burdensome as you'd expected because you found, I guess, essentially like be- better technology you could use on the independent side than at least what you had at your at your former broker dealer. So you got all the staff savings. What else is has 
turned out differently or kind of surprised you of what you expected independent life to look like when you were looking at it from the broker dealer side versus what it's actually turned out to be? The reception. I would tell you the reception I received from clients, it's been exceptional. There, I believe, uh, through through podcasts, podcasts like uh, Michael Kitsis and others, through media, the fiduciary rule, whether in place or not in place, just the the conversation of uh, of the fiduciary rule, it has increased the awareness of the clients that are looking to work with someone like me or other others other advisors. So the the reception by the clients has been exceptional, and that's been welcome because even with with strong relationships and, and I've, I've had just really great relationships with other professionals with with the clients of course there was a there was i was nervous are they coming with me are they bailing out is this their opportunity to say you, you know i'm hitting the eject button kind of thing well it didn't happen they came along and and in sitting down and and explaining why i've made the choice that i made for the clients and that's i did make this choice, Michael, for the clients. That's where I started, is that I, I, I wanted to be able to present to people what I believe is is the best relationship for them uh, that, I, that I, I felt I could present to them. So I went with that approach and it, it's, it's been really a great reception. And it's, it's, not all, it's not all easy or anything. I don't want to get down that way, but, but in explaining it to them, their awareness out in the in the world through information has has reinforced the decision that I made, but also reinforced the relationship, even with all the challenges of the paperwork that we had to do uh, when I made the change. Interesting. So all all this media buzz over the past, I guess, really like three years or so since the DOL put forth its final fiduciary rule. That was when the media like really took it up and started running with it and putting fiduciary out there in the general media world. That three years now batting that around first with DOL fiduciary, then with regu- the SEC's regulation best interests and even state fiduciary rules. You know, you're you're in New Jersey. New Jersey's even actively debating a state fiduciary rule right now that you are actually finding in practice that is now in the in the consumer discussion enough that when you at least point out like, hey, I'm actually switching to the RIA side and I'll be in the a full fiduciary position with you, like that actually mattered to people. They understood what that meant and received it well. It did. It did. And I, I would have to share, uh, had a, a meeting here at the office. Uh, I every now and then hold a meeting in the morning with some of the COIs that I work with, just get together and, and talk. And I I buy a light breakfast and everything, and we we chat. And I announced it to them that I've made this change. And if there were six of them in the room, four of them knew exactly what I was talking about. One of them had some knowledge. One had no idea, but most of them knew exactly what I was talking about and congratulated me on the decision. So I'll say this is a point of encouragement for those listening to uh, to get out there and start talking about it. How did you break the news to them? Because I know for a lot of people looking to make these kinds of changes, it's it's scary to go to clients and basically say like, hey, you know, I used to have this big firm behind, you know, this big broker dealer firm behind me that I guess you may or may not have known directly because some BDs have more consumer retail presence than other. But at least like you knew there was this big firm out there that I was anchored to 
now I'm going to, you know, hang, hang my own shingle, you know, tranquilly advisors. I know there's at least a lot of nervousness from, from some advisors saying, are, are the clients going to be comfortable to stick with me when I go from, I used to have this big firm that I was a part of to now it's quote, just me. Was that an issue or not an issue? Like, how did you explain and break the news to them when, you know, you'd been with your broker dealer for a long time, they were used to you being there. And all of a sudden you got to come out and say like, Hey, I'm making a big change. You're going to have to do a ton of paperwork, but let me tell you about it with a great spin. Right. (laughs) Well, I won't call it spin. I will say that it was just an honest discussion of why I made the, the, the choice that I made. And, and again, back to the, the level of experience, I wouldn't suggest uh, maybe an immediate uh, jump into the RIA world without more infrastructure, without more knowledge. I was able to really talk to them, Michael, about, about why I was making a choice. And the, I will say, ultimate impact on them was virtually nil and only an improvement because of having one one place to custody assets, but how I presented it to them, how I announced it to them. Uh, it started with, I had to do the resignation from a broker dealer dance before I could go announce it to anybody. So it was, it, it was a harrowing three or four days of phone calls, emails, follow-ups, need you to come into the office. There is some urgency to it. And that part was not super fun, okay? That's all I can tell you. But but I did announce it with confidence, and I think that was important, that my relationship with them was intact, uh, that I, I had plans in place. I did explain it to, to them when they came in, the why, the what, and the how. And because of the – I had credit, if you will, of trust, and I did use that credit of trust with the clients. They took it. Well, uh, some hiccups along the way, service-wise, or uh, clients that they there were the old statements crossed over to the new statements. So that needed more explanation over the course of the I'll say ninety days after becoming an RIA. But the the initial announcement was it it was I'll say business as usual with this new with Lou Tranquilly in charge of the entire business rather than a I'll say a third party entity. And so that was kind of how you framed it to them. Like I'll, I'll, I'll just have more control. I won't have to answer to a home office and what I do for you. I can make the decision. Like that was that part of the framing or the talking point. Yeah, it, of course that was that was part of the conversation, the framing, the warm reception here at the office, and and just that uh, I'm a professional. I, I've 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 got a lot of experience and had a lot of experience uh, in this world, and this is the next natural progression of the business and you are part of it and and come along so you have this firm at over a hundred million dollars under management you're you know you're able to run incredibly lean with a tech stack that i think we probably still measure measure in the like thousands of dollars per year when you know you can get revenue close to a million dollars on a hundred million of of aum before you maybe take out some third-party manager costs and and you've got this really lean staff. So how do you look at this from a like a business or a margins perspective? Like, do you look at profit margins and manage to profit margins as you look at hiring decisions and where to go from here? I have to because, and I I, I promised you when we we discussed be, me coming on here to talk about the career in this because I made the mistakes in the past, Michael, and that's uh, I think 
that's cautionary tale. And you know, I've got to give credit. This is where I'll give credit to some people. I've been lucky in that my business manager, Flory Cook, has been a wonderful friend and confidant for many, many years. And she was helpful in making decisions and 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 pointing out when I didn't get things right. Uh, Nicola Sutton, who has been a part of my office in the past, and I know you knew from from my broker dealer, was an amazing help with the growth of the business. There were business coaches in there. Helen Davis, uh, Indaba One, if you you want her her website, and then even conversations and just consulting conversations with Angie Herber. So I've had all these wonderful people that I've, I've, I've listened to and then I didn't listen to. And each time, and I'm getting to your, to your answer about hiring staff and what it means to the bottom line, each time that I have not listened and they've said, you need to think about this. And I've said, no, I like that person or, or I think they fit and I'll pay them I'll overpay them because they're so talented. It came from a large organization. And I think working with a small organization like mine should be so easy. I've gotten it wrong. So it's it, hire the personality, not the person is, is if I, I believe I have that phrase correct that I've heard from more than one of the people that I'm referencing. So I've fallen in like with the people. So it's not about the bottom line. I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to take whatever is less on the gross revenue, the profit margin to, to bring the right people in. I've got to slow down and make sure that I slow to hire process and really be sure that I'm bringing the right person in uh, without concentration on the bottom line revenue number, but instead with concentration on what is right for Tranquility Financial Advisor that will lead to the best that clients should be receiving for what they're paying for. So can I ask, like, what is the what is the profit margin of the firm look like at this point when you're running this kind of lean solo technology leveraged practice? Sure. I mean, it's in the 63% range. I just went through a process of having the the business value because I've purchased a few financial advisor books along the way. So I just had it valued. Uh, I would say a simplistic valuation, but it, it was uh, effective. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's where it came out. So interesting because I, I know this is the challenge and, and I imagine probably ties to some of the, the hiring struggles that you've had in the past that when you run a, when you run a highly profitable solo firm and, you know, as you said, like you're, you're running 63% profit margins because you're, you're doing the advisory work and, and you participate in the, in the bottom line profits as well. Like there's more than enough dollars to hire a person if you find a neat person to hire, which I would imagine is both, well, you know, freeing on the one hand for the business, like find an awesome person, got plenty of free cash flow to invest in them. The bad news is, also, it makes it very enabling for impulse hires that turn out not to work out well, because you're saying, "Look, I got more than enough dollars." The bottom line, like this person seems good, I can afford it. I'm going to go ahead and hire them, and it, and it sounds like that's been part of the challenge for you in just trying to figure out how to how to really vet and identify who's the who's the right fit, who's going to contribute to the business. Without question, that is that is that has been, and I and I've spoken to business owners in all areas, and I, I've I've been I've met with financial advisors all over the country. Uh, a favorite thing to do is go visit financial advisors randomly. I don't even know them. I'll call them and say, 
can I stop in and see you? I'm a financial advisor in New Jersey, and it is without question the challenge that each of, each of us have. And you know, part of the staffing that I, I would like to bring in is the certified financial planner graduate. I would like to do that. It's tough getting into New Jersey because the, the programs that I'm, I know there's a good program here at William Patterson University in New Jersey. I haven't met any of the, the, the graduates from there. I don't know if they're, they're headed for New York City. I'm about 50 miles from the city, but I'm interested in, in, in that program. I think it's great. The XY Planning Network, uh, I, I have to give you the plug there because uh, I like what, you, what you're doing there and I, I want to meet those people and have that mindset in my office. So yes, I, I'm looking for them. It's it's not all about, uh, it's certainly not all about me. It's just about about doing it what I believe is the right way. And, and I think I have plenty of time to work. Uh, I have four kids that are all going through college. So I've got a lot of time to work. Uh, all right. Well, so, that's, that's, so that's where all the free cash flow goes for the next few years. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you are a smart planner, Michael. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so so then help me understand from the flip side, just, you know, you've, you know, you've got this profitable firm, you've had some challenges in the past because the profitable firm made it easy to hire a person that then maybe turned out to be a little bit too much of an impulse hire for the person and maybe not the right personality and that didn't work out. So like, I guess for lack of a better way to frame this, like, so how do you control yourself at this point to not go right down the same road again, since if anything, it sounds like you've got even more free cash flow than you did before because it turned out your staffing needs were lighter once the technology and the compliance dust settled. So how how do you, you know, just having done this for 20 plus years, like how do you manage yourself around trying to figure out who's the right hire next? Well, and, and I, I, the thoughtful answer is this. I have people that I can rely on on to to go to and and I've while I've mentioned them and and they're important to me I haven't relied on them enough and I think every advisor needs to to have that those those people those confidants that they can go to other advisors that they were other financial advisors how do you get it right how did you find this person that's been with you for 20 years I'm going to make it more of a so even though this is a small firm or a small business we'll call it uh, I'm going to make it a big business in the hiring process, Michael. So they won't interview with Lou Tranquilly. They will interview with me and others that are are people I respect and trust that I've already named. Uh, they will talk with them and they will they will go through their process of of discussing. So I'm going to take the smallness out of hiring and instead make it a bigger process. And I admittedly so basically leverage outside consultants who can help you vet people, make the decisions, try to figure out who's the right hire that's the right fit for the business rather than rather than relying on, on your judgment, which unfortunately hasn't always worked out for you as hope. No, and I, I hope you don't mind me being so open about that, but but I, I, I came to share and I'll share the, the successes along with the, the failures. Uh, it's, a, it's a big part of, uh, of the iceberg illustration. The, there are a lot of things that go into being a good financial advisor and planner and and professional and and some of it is is the tough the tough part of it like this so i want to shift tracks a little bit you know you're you've got this firm today that's sitting at a, a you know fantastic 100 million dollars that you're managing as a 
largely as a solo with you know lean staff support and great technology leverage. You have this great profit margin. So take us back to the beginning because I, I I know you didn't you didn't even start in the you know AUM gathering realm. You started over on the insurance side. So take us back to the the starting point now, so we can kind of understand the journey of how you go from insurance agents to independent advisory firm with a hundred million dollars under management. Sure, that's. Uh... I, I I'm smiling as I as I respond because it, it's it the long and winding road. I mean I can't resist you know saying so uh, I did I started off in the insurance business life insurance sales disability uh, 1992 I had a friend of mine that was in the business uh, and he worked with a company uh, they're gone now Provident Mutual they were out of Philadelphia they were a really great small insurance company only about 600 reps at the time and. But really, very, very successful reps, insurance people, and I, I was lucky enough to be recruited into a small office that had some very talented people in it, and they were they were insurance salespeople, and it, it was it was the Monday night phone calls, Wednesday night phone calls, Friday morning meeting, people clapping, and and the whole thing. Admittedly, I did I did like that that work in doing it in that it was important work and that unfortunately had written some insurance early on and then there were claims that I had to deliver as well so i understood the business early on and the impact that it could have on people but but it was a sales job i mean that that's all there is to it you you were selling and and every day if you weren't finding somebody new to sell to as as the saying would go in the office you're out of business every minute. You're not calling somebody, so it was. I mean, it was a it was a grind, and it, it and I just got into it, and I I studied the LUTCF, if you recall that designation. Yeah, absolutely, from the American College. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, Love the American College. I I eventually accomplished my CLU, Michael, and and uh, forgive me for for stating this. In ten months, I completed my CLU. Wow, you powered through that. Okay. I powered through it. Well, I had, my two oldest sons are only 14 months apart. They would wake me up at five o'clock in the morning. Uh, they'd go right back to sleep. And then, and I was up. <laughs> might, might as well study. So it, it was, um, it, yes, I, 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 I grounded out for, uh, for 12 years in that work. So, so I guess I got two questions. Then first, so as you came into the life insurance business, and as you said, a pretty a pretty direct sales job, that was the gig. Like, Did you know that's what it was coming in? Like, did you come in to do that? You were all excited to say, like, I want to I want to sell life insurance because I can you know make some good money at it. And like, this will be my future. What got you to that first life insurance sales job to begin with? Sure. They were they were open and honest, believe it or not. They, they did not tell me that I was going to be, oh, I, I'm trying to remember any of one of the 1,000 titles that were given at the time. But anyway, uh, they said, no, you're going to sell insurance and you're going to sell life insurance and disability insurance. It's a really good job. You'll get your series 63 so that you can sell mutual funds uh, and variable life insurance. They probably... Probably more the variable life insurance than the than the mutual funds. Thinking of the industry at the time, 
You bet. And, and if I can, Michael, just say this. I, I, yeah, I, I say I've been lucky all my life, and, and I really was. I started in the business just as the universal life policies that were illustrated at 12 and 15 and 17% fixed interest rates were all blowing up. So thankfully, I, ha- I was witness to that going on, uh, which, of course, I didn't want anything to do with because I want to be good at my job. So I saw all that happen and I saw what happened to people. And that's that's unfortunate, of course. So I, I actually early on witnessed the power of the job that we all do. And, and I was determined to get better at it if it was in the insurance field to get better at it, but to continue to learn. So I, I was hired for a sales job in selling insurance. And fortunately, Provident Mutual was a really, really nice start. So then how did you like literally get get going and get clients? Just were you, you know, cold calling out of the gate, you stay late on Mondays and Wednesdays to catch people when they're home for dinner and just you cold called and you were able to make it work? Or were you doing other things trying to get clients and survive in the early years? In the early years it was uh they called them red tops. They had a red streak across the top. Uh I sat down and I I I I beat that phone up, Michael. That's all there is to it. Fortunately, uh, because of my background, I come from a very blue-collar family. Because of that, there were a lot of people that I knew, I'll say in the blue-collar world, that wanted someone they could talk to that they could trust. And I wanted that to be me. So I, I, I was fortunate in that I had, I'll say, an advantage in I did have some people to call that weren't family members, that were people from other walks of life. And I wasn't calling up and saying, I'm a financial advisor now. I was calling up and saying, I want to talk to you about life insurance. You had a natural market, the holy grail. You had a natural market. I did. I did. That, that's, that was, uh, again, back to the being lucky my whole life on it. It, it, was, uh, it was a lucky break. And I, and I also worked on it too. I, I, I started the CLU, almost. I'm sorry, the LUTCF, almost immediately at the uh, insistence of the uh, people running the office that they said, this, 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 designation or this training is just really good for talking with people about the things that you're going to be able to talk about. Obviously, those things now are, are they're still relevant, but but they're not things that I talk about at the level that I did then. It's much higher level now. But that was really, really great advice in getting started that way. Yeah. And and for people who maybe aren't aren't familiar, the like the LUTCF was kind of the 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 early entry designation for life insurance agents. It was the, I think like life and life, life underwriter training council fellow. Like it was, it was sort of the entry level professional designation for insurance agents to start really learning more about the insurance business. Like it was the professional side. You got sales training in the the office because everybody did sales training. Like it was the, it was the professional side of, here's the construction of life insurance products and how they work and here's how they're priced and here's the underlying mechanics. Like, so you could actually understand the, the stuff and the way the business came together. And then the people that wanted to go deeper beyond LUTCF would go and get their full CLU designation, which sounds like you, you followed through on and did as well. So you found some traction in the life insurance world between some cold calling, finding a, or I guess going back to a natural, markets in the in a blue collar world that you come from you're getting some life insurance sales so how did it progress through the first couple of years like were you 
actually making pretty good money out of the gate? Or did it still take a while? Like, what did that progression look like in the early years? Uh, it, it was it was decent out of the gate. It was the career path that I think a lot of the people that I've heard on your podcasts in the past have taken, I would imagine, are welcoming a walk down memory lane as I am right now. But the, the, the first few years, it was, it was a bare knuckles job. And bare knuckles mean pick up the phone with one hand, uh, squeeze tight, and you, uh, you know, unclench the fist and Put a finger on the uh, the the phone and and dial kind of thing. So it, it it just it's the way I had to do it. And failure was no option. I I think one thing if I could teach any advisor that's out there that aspires to do this, they're in college now, is you cannot go into this work and and think, oh, I could always go do whatever it may be. You have to think, no, I'm dedicated to this, and I am. I'm going to see it through. And I know it's lean. Uh, I know it's difficult at the beginning. It's an entry-level job, if you will. Take it that way. Even if you've got a great education, I am going to stick with this because if I can make it, when I make it, I should say, through three, four years, I am now a professional at this work and and I will only be more successful. So I really, I did take that approach. And that, that's that's just the determination, if you will, that I've I've had as an, and I think I apply it to all things I do. Oh, and it it, it is an interesting dynamic. I mean, there, there's always the famous, you know, Cortez burning the ships when he came to the New World. He didn't want to, you know, he he wanted to make sure that you know if if everybody thought retreat was an option that you could always get on the ship and sail back to the old world, you weren't going to necessarily put everything that it was going to take to survive and succeed in the brutal, you know, wilderness of the new world. So, you know, if you burn the ships, uh, everybody really has no choice but to get really, really focused on how they're going to make this work. And I think there is a, a real dynamic to that in starting in the business here, where it's just, even for people who are very good, it's so rough in the first few years, just a lot of no's and a lot of rejection and not a lot of income yet while you're, while you're getting going that if it's, you know, even if you're going to do well in the long run, it's really hard in the early years. And if you give yourself too easy of an out, when the going gets tough, you'll probably take it. And, it, and you have to come in with a failure is no option mindset, or you won't maintain the perseverance to power through when the inevitable difficult times come before you you get to the years that usually turn out to be pretty good, but only much, much later. Well, it becomes the greatest job in the history of mankind, Michael. And that's that's my opinion of it at this point. I, I've like I said, I've listened to your podcasts uh, for years now, and, and and genuinely enjoy them. And I really hear the same thing over and over again, which is which is the joy and pleasure of sharing the story, the method of operation, the challenges, the the victories, because there is such a love of the job by the people that are doing it. It really, it gets to that. It just have to get there kind of thing. And it's, it's not easy. If it were, as you know, everybody would be doing it. So you started out at the life insurance company, like you came in to sell life insurance, you were ready to do it. You found some traction enough that you were making some dollars and, and stuck around. So what came next? Like, were you just on that track with pretty much no change for 10 years? Did you start iterating and shifting in what you were doing? Like what changed next? Sure. It's, it's, uh, it's part of the story of, of working with the insurance company. As I mentioned, Provident Mutual, was, they, they were a pro- progressive 
small company. They hired two people, and I wish I could remember their name because they they deserve uh, credit. They hired two people to run their broker dealer who came in and they said, this is a third-party money manager, and this is going to be the future of your job. And that was about 1995. And I sat there and I thought, man, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so, <laughs> but they did know what they were talking about. And it started off with just a few SEI and a few others that were out there I'm and available. To think of who would have been available then? Manager's like, Choice. Oh yeah, Manager's Choice was Lockwood on the on the platform at that point. Lockwood was on the platform. Uh, they and they were not part of Pershing at the time. They were their their own deal. Of, uh, um, there was one or two others, and and I did pay attention after a little while. You know, they said, "Okay, you're not going to make that four and three quarter percent." commission on the mutual fund sale any longer, you're going to go charge a fee and you're going to do this. And and of course, initially it was- <laughs> You're saying they're like, let me get this straight so I can get 50% target premium on my next VUL sale, or I can get one quarter of 1% in my first quarterly billing three months from now on this third-party money manager thing. Right. And this is a good thing. Uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> and this is supposed to be a good thing. Like- so initially, I resisted, but uh, but after after they presented things as 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 they saw them and they saw them very very well, and I, I really did appreciate it and I still appreciate it. Uh, I started I started to build it. I didn't admittedly get involved fully, but I I did I did start to get involved. Okay, and so I mean, was there a I don't know a shift, a light bulb moment, like a something that that drove you to the point of saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pull the trigger. Sure. So I had worked with Provident Mutual. They were purchased by Nationwide. And I thought, no way. Uh, I've been doing this for 12 years. Nationwide came in and said, you've got this requirement, which was significantly higher than the the requirement that Provident Mutual had. It went from- oh, in, in terms of requirements for writing company product? career production and all those those terms I never want to use again in my life, but I will here. So they they multiplied it significantly and I I just thought, no way, no way. I'm I'm going I'm finding an independent broker dealer or independent channel to go to. The RIA channel at that point, that was two thousand and two, I want to say, two thousand and four, they they didn't really exist. I mean, I know they existed. Yeah, but was, they didn't. Yeah, it was minuscule back then. Correct. That is correct. So that wasn't any kind of option for me anyway, because I hadn't built what would be an RIA business. I had built a commissionable business. So help me understand where the practice stood by 2001, 2002, when, when Nationwide buys Provident and imposes these, these higher requirements. I mean, for like, was, was the problem for you just, oh my God, those are crazy high production requirements. I'm just not going to hit those numbers. Or was it more of a, hey, I'm actually starting to do more of this third-party money manager stuff. I really kind of like it. I don't want to have to go back and spend more time trying to write more lives on the insurance end because I'm actually growing more of my business on the money manager end. Like, was it, what, what was it that made the, the new nationwide requirements such a turnoff that you started looking elsewhere immediately? I wanted to be done with the sales job, Michael. It, that's what it, uh, you did get it. You, you did. You did get it. it. It was a matter of me just looking at it, saying, "No, this is not. 
this is not the way I want to do this anymore. And, and by the way, I am uh, fully on board with the sale of life insurance, disability insurance. Uh, they're, they're excellent and everything else. And, and they're so necessary. And my time spent in the business was time well spent. Uh, I realize that now. But you asked where, where, where did the practice stand in 2001, 2002? On the precipice of failure, man, because I was I had spent all this time selling life insurance, and now I was going to break that relationship, and any renewals that came along with it were gone. If I went to sell the clients more life insurance or replace it, Nationwide would 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 send people looking for me, and I didn't want to be looked for. So I had to I had to start over for for the most part. Fortunately, I had built really good relationships outside of just client relationships, but CAI relationships. And they were a big help in getting it started back up with the broker dealer involved and away from the insurance and getting into the assets under management. And then from there, really getting into the planning discussions. So in the late 90s, as Provident has this BD and there's someone internally that's starting to beat the drum saying, hey, you should check out this third-party money manager thing. This is going to be the wave of the future. Were you starting to build an assets and our management money manager base or just they planted the seed, but you weren't actually doing much of that yet? You were still primarily writing life insurance and then realize when you're going to make a change like, oh, crap, I'm going to have to walk away from the insurance and the trails and the rest. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the exact line I used. The answer is I started to build. I left the the insurance world with approximately four million under management. Not a lot uh, for the time it could have been. Not a lot, but, you know, forty grand a year at one percent. Like it's it's something. It's better than cold zero. It it means some BDs will probably take your call because you'll show up with a little with a little bit of revenue. So with a little bit of work, we can get you up over fifty thousand a year of uh, GDC. Uh, so I thought, great, I'm I'm on my way. Uh, you can hopefully hear my my laugh and smile. It was it was a funny time. My wife was nervous to say the least. Uh, I would imagine so. So did, did she tell you like you're nuts? Why are you walking away from the insurance company? Or did you tell her there were production requirements? So like, look, this just isn't going to happen. We got to make a change. Like, how does how's that conversation? go because you know uh spousal support is a pretty big deal when you're making these transitions well spousal support is a big big deal and 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 i've had it the whole way through because jackie is my wife and and she didn't really i i'm sometimes and i'm joking when i say this but but somewhat i still don't know if she knows exactly what i do for a living so she uh she was nervous and that's really so it wasn't it's it's part of the equation of the, the back to that iceberg illustration of, of what goes on, if you will, behind the scene, scenes. Uh, it, it's difficult to explain to your partner exactly what you do and how you do and how you have to do it along the way and the changes that you have to make because there are so many people with, if you will, a, a steady job along the way that this work and the disruptions that you make can be very confusing. So she pretty well thought I was nuts. She thought I was nuts when I went and started an RIA, um, but that's okay. I'm uh, a little bit a little bit crazy is okay. So the one thing I'm wondering about just this this transition. So you said at the beginning, like you went in for the life insurance sales job. They were pretty straight with you, like this is going to be a life insurance sales job. You went in and did the deal. You did it for uh, for twelve years or so, and so 
you went in taking the life insurance sales job. And by the end, you said essentially you were leaving because you wanted to be out of the sales job. So what what changed over the 12 years that you were happy to go into this gig, but by the end, you were happy to leave and make the transition away? Well, I continued to seek education. And in doing so, it really led me to it really led me to the the planning side of things, the understanding that it's not about selling someone something. It's about sitting down. Let's go back to those those blue collar people that I started off with and 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 good good people that needed someone they could talk with. It's about talking with someone who says, I I, I don't want to I don't want to work anymore. What does that mean to me that I don't want to work anymore? Can I do this? Well, you can't answer that question with a life insurance policy. And and as much as the insurance companies would love you to answer it with an annuity, you can't answer it with that either, okay? So it's it's more complex than that. And that was of interest to me because of my, my desire to continue to learn. I was just interested in how do I become a better version of me for the people as they continue to go through life. And, and of course, the referrals that you get from clients become more and more complex. So I just had a, I just had a desire to be, to be better at the job and to, to, to advise rather than sell and get paid for the advice that I would give. So you decide to make this transition. You've got your, you've got your 4 million of, of AUM to bring along. So what was the process like then of trying to find a place to land of trying like did you know what the independent broker dealer world was did you know what you were looking for how did you find where you were going next i i i said i'm i said i'm leaving and then i went out and started looking and i uh, had i had spoken with a few I had been recruited. You get the phone calls. I've been recruited. One was a local broker dealer, independent broker dealer. Uh, they were local. They seemed like nice people. And after speaking with a few independent broker dealers, they were local. And that ruled the day. I felt like I could get in my car and drive paperwork down there and do the business I needed to get done quickly because we still didn't have the internet to rely on at that point. So, so boy, I'm going to sound very old when we get done with this. I'm not that old, but, uh, but the, the bottom line is we just didn't have the internet and certainly uh, uh, no, no phones to message on or anything like that. So they were local. And I, I felt like that would be smart to work with someone that was local and to do business as efficiently as possible. If you're catching up on a theme uh, of, of my method of operation. Yeah, it's it's a striking thing to me that, you know, sometimes we don't realize how much the industry has moved in a relatively short period of time that, you know, today when you look at, you know, what broker-dealer would you affiliate with or what platform would you affiliate with overall, it almost immediately comes back to, well, who's got the best technology to make my practice efficient, right? As you said, like the the tech demo from TCA was one of the key things that 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 sold, that closed the deal. And it wasn't that long ago that the primary way you chose your your broker dealer or your platform was you know what's the quality of the local branch and do you like the local branch manager because everything was local there's like it, it's all local paperwork and local people and local management and so it 
it would just come down to who had the best local presence of offices, facilities, and managers that would hopefully support your practice and not be a pain in your backside. That's right. That's right. Their compliance department was very good, and and I, I've respected that the whole way through. So I chose them and, and spent 12 years with them. And so what, what broker-dealer was that? Where did you go? Uh, the Investment Center in uh, uh, Bridgewater, New Jersey, uh, just about 15 minutes from my office. Okay. And so- so what did it look like when you got to the investment center? So you show up like, I'm now in the independent broker dealer world. I've got my $4 million of of assets and 40000 or so of GDC, and I'm not selling insurance anymore. So like, what was the plan? What was the business plan? Like, What, what comes first or next? All right. So so I think, and, and for those in the RIA business and that wanted to hear this and the, the journey and everything else, this is really where, where I'll say the awakening comes in that I realized that AUM, I, I like the AUM model and I'm, I, 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 I like all the models that have to do with doing the best job you can for your clients. How's that? So some charge by the hour, the, the retainer, the AUM, I, I, I'm a fan of doing it right for the clients that you're doing just to, just to sweep, you know, get through that part of it. So I, I like the AUM model because, uh, I, I did like the reoccurring revenue. I thought it gave me the opportunity to stay focused on the clients, to, to build the business, to do it in a way that is giving them advice if they call up for whatever it might be. After a few years at the investment center and in building the structure of my office, I was fortunate enough uh, to go out, and I I have hired some good people along the way. I don't want to make it sound like I I haven't uh, <laughs> I've whiffed. They, they weren't all strikeouts. No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, when I've hired well, I've hired very well, Michael. So, uh, and and I will say that I sat down with a business coach, Helen Davis. I mentioned her earlier. She was my first business coach. Wonderful woman that uh, that really had a, an enormous impact on on my career and my life, and. She presented to me building a, a business plan, a proper business plan. I did it. I listened to her. Really an enormous help. Fast forward a few years, I'm starting to staff up now. And 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 I'm I'm feeling like this is going in the right direction. I started a study. Let, sorry, let me pause there really fast. So just you had someone to push you to to build what you said, like a proper business plan. So what like what did what did they have you build? What did that look like at the at the time? Like what was the the grand vision that was suddenly laying out for the first time for you? Okay, so so who do you want to be? First, you have to start with yourself. Who who would you like to be? Well, I would like to give advice. I have this now knowledge of all these years in the business. Uh, I have this knowledge of financial products. Now I've got taxes under my belt, and I'm not a not a CPA by, but just in conversation, estate planning. I went through multiple estate planning training through the insurance companies at the broker dealer. I'd go to independent meetings or, or seminars and, and listen in. I'd all this now. So start with the fact that I wanted to give people advice because I had all these pieces you know, in my brain that I could now share with very successful people, with people who are trying to be successful. So it started there. Her, her. She was insistent that I that I get away from thinking in a sales mode. Think of the client first. Always think of the client first. If you do that, the clients will come. And oh, by the way, they'll bring their friends. She was right. So I, I, I really 
hit that independent. So what did that mean in in practice? Like I'm I'm gonna assume when you were at the at Provident, you weren't like, oh no, I never think of the clients first. Like I'm all about my sales. Like we we all try to be mindful of this to some set. So like what what was the what was like what was the mindset shift of what that really meant for you when she's saying like don't be in sales mode and think of the clients first. Like what, what did you stop doing or start doing differently? And thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So, so what, what she meant is that at Provident, it was very clear what my, my job was. My job was to sell life insurance. And if that meant solving an estate planning problem, that's what I, that's how I did it. So I was, a, if you will, a problem solver rather than an advice giver at, at that point. So the shift became, and it, Put the put the I put yourself in the in the shoes of the client. Who do you want that to be that you're speaking to? What do they need? Are they business owners? Are they Wall Street executives? Are they small business owners? Big business owners? Do you want to run four hundred and K plans? So she wanted me to define what I wanted to be to the people that were sitting in front of me. It took some doing. It took some some back and forth to really to really work through that and define start to define as an advisor, what I wanted to present to people. And it, it took, it did, it took some time because, you know, I still had to earn a living. It, it was, it was a challenge to say, I'm going to step back and work on the business rather than in the business kind of thing. But I did it. And uh, I'm hopeful I'm answering your question with that. that response. I think you have an interesting framing for it that, you know, when you, know, when you're at the life insurance company and you sell life insurance, like you're, well, your, your job is to be a problem solver ideally finding problems where life insurance is the solution to the to the problem and uh, you know wh- which is fine if you actually are good at staying focused on that and just solve the particular problems that life insurance legitimately solves i think the challenge for some people is when you get paid to sell life insurance and life insurance is supposed to be a problem solving solution you run into the classic like you know when your only tool is a hammer every problem starts to look like a nail and and you try to sell it for a wider range of solutions and problems than it probably should. But but you have an interesting framing that even reflecting back, because you know, I started in the same path. Like I started out on the life insurance side of the business and then moved to the advisory side. And 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 I kind of had a similar experience that, you know, the starting point was like, here's the thing you sell, go find people who have this problem and, and sell this thing to them. And my challenge and frustration was that like I would meet people and they would have problems, just not that problem, just not the problem of the thing that I was there to sell. And I was really bad at you know selling it to anybody, no matter what their problem was. I was like, well, I found them, they have other problems. So I'd like to implement some other solutions with them of other things that they need. It was like, well, okay, but that's not going to qualify your contract for career production. So that didn't that didn't last very long. And that was what I think for me as well started shifting the mindset and the focus of, you know, when, when I went down the journey and shifted from life insurance company to independent broker dealer, for me, it was basically, look, I want to give people advice. I'm really aggravated that I'm really only supposed to come to the table with one tool or one primary tool. And I'm supposed to make everybody's problem fit my tool. I like, I'd rather have a much bigger toolbox so that I can just sit across from anybody, no matter what their problems are, and find something in my toolbox that actually solves whatever problem it is they have, and 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 that was what took me from life insurance world to 
independent broker dealer world, like, okay, now we have a thing with a big platform with a whole bunch of tools. So I just got to sit across from anybody and do a financial plan. And they're going to have some problem for which I can pull some tool out of the toolbox and solve whatever the client needs first, instead of just that, that, as you put it, that sales mode of find someone who wants to buy the thing I'm selling. So yes, I had that epiphany, uh, who, who I wanted to be and started down that path and really just went out and I, I hired, uh, when I moved my office to Clinton, I hired another business coach, Pam Duda, and uh, she was really great. She she walked me through the the book of business and said, okay, tell me about each of these people. Let's Let's profile them. Let's start to really get to know who they are and see who it is that when you're walking down the street in Clinton, you're really glad to see that person. And let's let's start to talk about how we we talk to more of them. Uh, I worked with Pam from a from a coaching standpoint, but uh, back to the the really great hires. I made a really fantastic hire, Michael, and, and you have met her, and that's Nicola Sutton, now part of a team uh, for a large a large asset manager. And I hired her, and she took the work that the two business coaches put in place. She took that work along with uh, with the different thoughts I had about how do we build this out more and bigger. And she put she put the pieces in place to actually find those people. And uh, I always give her compliments. So she was like hired as a marketing person, a marketing manager? Yeah, marketing business development, yes, uh, because it wasn't only marketing. It really was about developing the business and, and meeting those COIs and telling this now mature, I think, intelligent story of someone that could really get into complex planning and discuss many different areas that COIs needed needed help with explaining to clients. So I, I've said time and again, I was running when when I hired her. She was rocket fuel for the business uh, once I, I I hired her. Okay. So so can you talk to us about what kinds of things did she do that suddenly like rocket fuel growth the business? We sat down and and whereas the business coaches were always focused on on the, I'll say the, the, the personality or the, the, uh, the book of business internally, she, she being the individual creative person that she is said, well, here's how we go find those people. Where do those people, the, the classic, just define who it is you want to work with, really refine it and then go find where do those, where are those people? So she took that work and we, we worked on it thoroughly and she executed her plan to help Tranquility Financial Advisor grow, which, I mean, if you'd like numbers, I'll certainly give them. But yeah, like what did it what did it look like? Well, yeah. it was a $17 million AUM business when she reached me. Uh, by the time she left a few, few years later, she was hired by my broker dealer, which I was very happy for her that that was, that was the case. Uh, it was a great, great advancement for her. But I was well over $55 million, and that was three and a half years later. Wow. So that's 17 million to 55 million in three and a half years is a huge growth curve. So help us understand a little bit more about like what, what she was doing or what, what changed, you know, you said like she really helped you focus and refine who you were going after and where to find them. So like, how were you defining your target clientele at that point? Like, were you forming a niche? Were you just kind of defining a, a target client, like what, 
what do you, who did you decide you were going after and what did that look like at that point? Sure. And, uh, and, and it, it was niche marketing and it was uh, focused on specifically divorcing women at the time, uh, which I know has become more of a, a market to, for other advisors. So I really like to be respectful and say, wanted to work with them because I, I really did enjoy the process of helping during a situation that was very, very challenging. And she helped me refine that message and also be a professional in working with them, respectful and, and understanding who I was sitting across from and, and how it is I could be helpful. So that niche market was was very important. And also she worked diligently in the relationship marketing with the COIs that would understand the client that that should be working with Tranquility Financial Advisors. Really, really important impact on the business. And so so COIs at this point, centers of influence were were like divorce attorneys and accountants that were seeing divorced folks. Like was was that kind of how the referral started getting set up? Sure, that was part of it. And and also the the we organized the meetings in my office, I'll say quarterly for four or five professionals with the intent that they would meet each other and help each other in their businesses. Uh, so we'd have CPAs in here, real estate agents, uh, really excellent source of, of client referrals. So we would- So, wait, so what these- were you doing with them or for them? Like, hey, just- Hey, hey, folks! Come to my lunch and uh, come to a lunch at my office, and we'll just network. Come, come to a breakfast at seven thirty in the morning. I promise you'll be at your desk by nine a.m. We'll give you coffee and a light breakfast, and you'll meet some other professionals that I know that are good at their job. And that's just just how we approached it. And so, anybody who was looking to any other professional in a related or adjacent field who was looking to grow their business a little is like, sure, I'll go to lose breakfast thing. And and then you just start building a network of people. That is correct. Yes, and it really, it, it's it's very professional for them because now they have people that they know and can refer to, uh, and it's very professional for me because the the COIs have met in my office uh, in a really comfortable setting and and uh, met other again other professionals that that help to grow the business. Okay, interesting, and so. So you're getting clearer on focusing on divorcing women. You're starting to tell a story around, here's our ideal client who we work with. And then you're just trying to get in front of as many COIs and other professionals that you can network with. So you just get known as like, lose the guy that works with women going through a divorce. Was that essentially the the focus and the strategy? Well, that sums it up well. Yes, is is the answer. We, we, we I mean, I read voracious and I read voraciously, but the, you know, few, a few things, put a few things in place that we read about. And that was, that was part of it is how can you be efficient in your efforts to meet the COIs, build a professional network, which comes out of the uh, best practices of elite advisors. That was the Oxley book, basically took that book and put it on the table and said, okay, let's, let's start working on it. And, uh, and the e-myth for financial advisors, that was part of that. And just Yes. So me, how, do, how do we go about what's the most efficient way to do all these different parts of marketing and meeting and everything else? We, we applied them and they, they worked beautifully. I didn't, didn't argue with the, uh, with the success of, of, of their suggestions and just, just kept going with it. Interesting. So it's, it always strikes me and like, I don't, 
I don't mean this to sound belittling at all, but I, I, I feel like sometimes there's this painful, desperate search to try to find like the next big marketing thing that works, the next big strategy that works, you know, like what's the next new hot thing. And, and your, your strategy just really came down to like, read some books of people of experts that have written about this and just actually do what they say. And this stuff works. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why argue with success? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, the best the best way to put the, the latest and greatest that you were just stating is the shiny new thing. Don't always be running for the shiny new thing. Pick your spot, know who you are, and 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 then get to work on it and apply it as as it should be applied to you. Don't, I'm I'm not trying to be uh, any one of I'll say the industry giants. I'm trying to be the very best. That's that that I should be for the people I work with, and I deliver value for that, and I can be effective, and and I should know more people, and I will know more people to work with because of, of all these, all this history that we're going through, but also the reflection and the the willingness to to do the things that you know work. There's no reason to no reason to fight with it. Yeah. Well, and and I love how you put it that like you're not out there trying to build and create this industry giant thing necessarily. You're just trying to be the best at who you work with and doing the stuff that matters for them. Every day. I love, I love that framing. So, so what came, what came next? You're, you're now finding your way into this divorce niche and getting some resonance there. Like what were there particular things that you were finding that were, working for you and starting to gain more traction than others? Well, sure. Uh, you, you, you stated it earlier and it was accurate. I did become, and I have become known as as the person to to reach out to. Obviously, everyone that walks through the door isn't a prospective client. I, I do give of my time to someone who is who is in a, in a fragile state, in, in a challenging time. I, I will give that person time to come to the office and I will provide them with explanation. And, and the very good news is that I've, I've, I've gained clients from it. And that's, that's really great. There are probably more clients I didn't get my, as a matter of fact, there are definitely more clients I didn't get or, or didn't, be, they didn't become clients, prospective clients uh, that did not become clients many more than became clients, but their personality, uh, uh, my personality and willingness to help them, I think, was important to the COIs that were referring them to me. And I will give those people uh, the hour they need to understand the different elements of going through a divorce. So I maintain that, uh, I'll say, hopefully go-to status as that person because I'm, I'm willing to give up my time to help that person in a time when it's, when it's required. And then, uh, of course, that shines a positive light on the COI and, and helps the person along as well. So, that, so it's an interesting kind of framing and point that you raised there that on the one hand, it sounds like you had a pretty clear acknowledgement. Like there's a, there's a certain type of client, even within the divorce realm that I, that I work with and is a right fit for me. I'm, I'm presuming that kind of just ties to uh, available assets or dollars or something that determines if they can pay you enough dollars to make the business work for you. But you would still meet with everybody that was getting referred in so that you maintain your relationship as the go-to and you maintain a good relationship with the with the COI. 
but it it was people who were getting referred to you in your niche still not necessarily everybody that was getting coming in off the street or just you weren't even getting other folks across the uh coming in across the street because you were already known for your divorce thing so that's why people showed up well, no, I, I, I mean, I still, I still continue to receive referrals from a number of different places. This, this is where the COI, the relationships with the COIs come in, in that they've come here, they've heard, they've heard the conversation of with a broker dealer now an RIA, understand how I do things. I have, I have given demonstrations of right capital, risk allies, explained the the custodial relationship. I have, and I, I do have to make sure that I acknowledge right now because I think it's important. I have a women's advisory board uh, that I, Nikki Sutton, that I put together uh, as part of of Tranquility Financial Advisors. So again, you know, I, I talk about all all the parts that I did get wrong, but uh, that's been the greatest thing that I've gotten right, Michael, is that I started a study group of other- Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like what this women's advisory board is? Sure. 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 There was the, uh, the financial advisor study group was, was really great. And then the women's advisory board wanted to understand what I could do to, again, uh, deliver information in a way that people, not the way I wanted to deliver it, or I wanted to say it, but the way they needed to hear it and they needed to receive it. So putting together a group of clients and non-clients, there are there are six members of the advisory board. They have we have now, I want to say we're on five years. I think we just we just passed. Uh, we had a, a meeting not long ago. And and their insight, things like my logo, Michael, I had a few designers drop my logo. With your logo. <laughs> yeah. They they I put the logo in front of them and said, here it is. What logo do you prefer? And they, they picked the logo, but it's something like that. Uh, it's, it's that, um, that piece of the business that is so, I think, important to me, even the name of the business. I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've heard the marketing people. I've heard, you know, get away from naming it after yourself and everything else. Well, my last name is Tranquilly. And to their point, no, that's the name. That that's that's a name that if someone is interested in working with you, I think you're going to take a level of interest in in hearing it. So I stuck with it, and and I appreciated that. But there are so many other parts of it, and we were talking about the referrals to other clients. They referred me to clients, of course, but they also they gave me confidence in 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 the way I was delivering it and and offering financial advice. I could be confident in. I knew that with with their knowledge of how I would deliver it, that I was doing it in the best fashion I could. It was really invaluable. It has been invaluable. So how did this advisory board get like picked or created or established in the in the first place? Like how do you how do you put something like this together? It's a good question. I've had it time and again. Uh, the way you put it together is you sit down with whomever it is that you're working with in in a, in a marketing capacity, in a coaching capacity, and explain who it is you're you're happiest to see when they walk through the door, or like I said, walking down the street, and you you run into them, and they've shown a, a genuine interest in your in your business, in you, and you start there, and and of course they're. I think good clients, they, they're, they're, they are representative of, of whom 
or the client that you'd like to work with moving forward. So it really was a matter of, of, of going through the different clients. And, and fortunately, it wasn't a challenge, if you will, to, to get to the group that it is because I, I had so many great choices, if you will. It was really more of a challenge to say who, who's not going to be a part of it because there are so many. So are they, is everyone on the advisory board a current client then? They were not when it started, but they are now, is the answer. I did not specifically, I, 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 in sitting down and saying, I want to work with, or I want to do this, they didn't have to be clients. They had to be someone that I knew professionally and respected. And they, again, they showed an interest in, in my business. So I had uh, two of the people that I started with. So 33% of the, the advisory board were, were clients at the time, uh, but and eventually became clients. And I will let you know that on LinkedIn, if uh, there are some articles that I've, I wrote in the past that, that are up on LinkedIn about the advisory board and about starting it. Okay. We'll, we'll make sure we get a, a link out to that as well. So this is episode 137. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 137, have a, a, some articles out on, you know, lose uh, links out on lose articles on starting his advisory board. The one other question I, I do have to ask, just particularly from the context of the people who joined who were not uh, clients, like just help me understand how that conversation goes, right? I know how it goes with an existing client. Like, hey, we're forming an advisory board to get better feedback from uh, the people that we work with. We love you to be on the advisory board to get feedback about you know what we're doing for you. Like, it's pretty straightforward for a client. They kind of have a self-interest because they're already being served and they would like to be served better and give their two cents. But how does that work for a non-client when you're going to them and saying, hey, I'd like you to be on my advisory board, even though I don't actually work with you in the first place? Certainly, it has to be, a, a, I'll say, a strong relationship, someone that I've spoken to in some business capacity. Uh, one of the, the non-clients, she is a real estate agent, and I had, we, we had crossed paths with some people that she had sold or purchased or helped purchase homes locally. So I knew her. She knew me. We, 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 we had this tangential, uh, I think I have that right, uh, relationship where we we knew of each other. And I, at one point, just said, how about if I buy a cup of coffee and we we get to talking? So we did. We probably spoke for six or eight months about work, different things that we, we, we our challenges at work. And when the advisory board was being put together, I mean, she was front and center as a non-client that I thought, all right, so somebody who doesn't know the way I do business, and that's you asked how I presented it. That's how I presented it. The other person was a technology, is a technology person. I went to both of them and said, you don't do business with me. So I would like to hear from you, how do you do business with the person you work with? Or how would you perceive that you would want to do business with someone like me? And I, that was really helpful, not only to me, but to uh, the other uh, women on the advisory board because they 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 could feed off that that outside perspective of not having sat down with Lou and gone through the process. So you put together the advisory board you formed in this niche. You know, it, it took you relatively quickly from seventeen million to fifty five million as you became known as the person. Uh, now, as you said earlier, you're at just over a hundred million. So was there 
Were there other milestones that came in the journey along the way, or has it has it largely been, hey, like once we found our thing that works around this niche, like we've just wash, rinse, repeated on the niche, and it's just compounded its way straight on to 100 million? Uh, well, uh, I mentioned earlier, I purchased uh, now three other advisors' books of business, Michael. So it, the niche the niche led to the, I'll say, the, the very strong base of being uh, with an independent broker-dealer. It allowed me the, the possibility of saying, uh, I think I've built a structure that can handle additional clients, uh, additional assets under management. Uh, because as I mentioned, I use third-party money managers. So I I was looking for advisors to purchase. I did go to the broker-dealer directly and and made, made it known that I wanted to make that happen. It started with a very small, you know, I, I'm fond of saying that uh, I, I do lay claim to, which is you paint the closet. Uh, you know, if you're painting a room and you don't know what you're doing, you start in the closet where nobody sees your mistakes. I purchased a you have a million and a half dollar book of business, so small, but it was someone that wanted to retire. And when I say he wanted to retire, I mean, it was August 1st. And by September 1st, he wanted to be in, he wanted to be in Florida. So like, see them now, get it figured out. I'm gone in 30 days. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and, and this was now, now don't forget, I'm, I'm, busy moving everything onto red tail and everything all during this whole conversation we're having. And he shows up with three milk crates of that look like they were from maybe 1968 uh, when I was two years old uh, that I don't even know when they were from. So we had a, we had to you know, weed the weed through those and, and work through them and ended up with some, Really, really excellent clients uh, from that book of business. So that was the first. And then uh, uh, another advisor uh, with a $10 million book of brokerage business, which was in, an interesting purchase. And we had to go through the conversations of how I work and how he worked. And that that also went very, very well. I converted about $8 million of that brokerage business uh, or broker business over to my model. And then the latest was uh, an advisor with just under $20 million of assets under management that I've purchased. And I'm in the process of paying her for her business over the course of the next few years. So that was, there was the, the exponential growth through the efforts in the office and then externally the purchase of other advisors. And uh, I'd like to continue on with both and even even create some additional, uh, I'd say one additional niche to work with. So as you look back at this journey over 20, uh, 25 odd years from insurance agent to broker dealer into the hybrid side and to over to full RIA, what's, what surprised you the most about trying to build your advisory business? Oh, it's a lot of work. There's, there's just no, and, and, and again, and I want to give all the the proper respect I can to the the guests that have come on before you because I, I've really enjoyed hearing their stories and the way they they work. I think they would almost to a person agree. You've chosen the way that you're going to work. Sometimes you feel like you've chosen it wrong that you know, they've made the wrong choice in how you, you do it because the the shiny new thing, the grass is greener, whatever parable you want to apply to it, it it's out there and you have to be dedicated to to finding the people that that are right for you and and that 
that may be the engineer for one person. That may be the doctor for another person. That may be the a divorced person for another. So I think you have to seek that out. And that's been the, the challenge was was always, and and I appreciate the compliment of that you you gave me before I took it as a compliment about reading Oxley's book and, and the E Myth and then doing what they said. But there was also there were also a lot of things I didn't listen to along the way, which was pick a niche. You know, go go do it. If you're young, go go. You know, and I shouldn't say young. I guess is, uh, but I should say if you're recently graduated from school, find those recent graduates that you can work with and build a base with and. So find a market that works or a niche that works for you and go with it and enjoy it. It's, it's, it's enjoyable. And so no, you know, did you ever have fears or concerns along the way as you focus the niche of, of, you know, the, the clients you weren't going to get cause you were focusing to a niche. And so they're like, Oh, well, you know, Lou works with divorcees. I'm, I'm not a divorcee. So I'm, I'm not going to call Lou anymore. Well, how about if I, I, I answer that with this, Michael? I know for a fact that there have been people that have not called me because they think I only work with divorced women. And okay. $100 million later, it doesn't seem to have been a deal killer for the business. Not at all. Not at all. No, that, and that's that's okay. And, and I've even had other professionals, the COIs, express concerns uh, about, uh, and again, I'm respectfully, marketing to women like they they don't they don't want to see me as marketing to women they want to see me as a resource and and fortunately after that was expressed to me and I, I took that to heart and went back to the people that I work with and said this is the feedback that I received and I, I think it needs to be contemplated considered and appreciated actually because how do you get better uh, other than hearing some honest feedback from others I took that concern and and made sure that we're presenting it as advice to the people that need the advice at the time that they're sitting in the office. So what was the low point for you? Oof. I, I mean, I want to say 2008, of course, but uh, <laughs> what was the low point of, uh, of the last decade or of the- The whole journey. Oh, that's a really awesome question. Okay, so twenty-five years of ups and downs. Sure, sure, and and I'm and I'm I cannot wait for the next twenty-five years of ups and downs. I mean that too. I, I this is the greatest gig ever. I just love what I do. So I will answer it with the break. The break from the insurance business was not easy. Those that have been in the insurance business, and you are one of them, know what what the top of the table is, and I. I was top of the table. I never made it to court of the table, but I was top of the table. And that was a hard break. And, and uh, I, I worked through a brokerage out in Utah for the insurance when I, when I ultimately left Provident Mutual. I, I didn't work for them. I worked through them. And I had my, my rep who was very good at his job. He called me up and he said, where did you go? And I told him what I, yeah, I told him what I had done, and I said, I made this break. As I, I was Cortez burning the boats, and he was very disappointed, Michael, as you can imagine. So, but I stuck to it, and it was the low point was a series of years, frankly, in in making the decision to to cut the cord of of that sales job and become truly an advisor to clients. That was four or five years, Michael, of 
of concern. Yeah, I have four kids. Like I said, I have a wife. I, like everyone else, there are bills and, and all those things that come along with, with being a person. And and my business manager, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned her name, Flory Cook, who's a wonderful human being. And I'm so blessed to have her as part of, uh, of this, this journey. She questioned me hard with the numbers, you know, like, look at this, you, you know, this is what it was. And this is what it is. Are you insane? But I, but I stuck to it. And, and now with this conversation, which, which I'm thankful for as well, I really feel good about not only where I am, but, 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 but where I'm going as well. So was there, was there a particular turning point after you'd done this transition and, you know, Flurry's reminding you how not to, or like, was there some transition point or moment where you were looking and saying like, okay, I, I, I think I've made it, or I think I'm going to make it like this, the, the patient's going to live. <laughs> <laughs> yes. is the answer to that. The patient will live. I can, but uh, the study group, uh, I sat with the study group and I, I had written down my goal of $100 million and I was admittedly not confident, Michael, of getting there. <laughs> so that was at the beginning. And I was not confident because I just, I, at the time, with all the background things that we've talked about, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I couldn't conceive the, the, the thought of $100 million under management because I was at seven or eight or, or 17 million at the time. Well, I started, I started with, with the hiring of, of Nicholas Sutton, as I mentioned. And from there, once, once I built that niche and I, I, I saw it and I felt it, and and then put together the advisory board, knew it, knew I was going in the right direction. I would say those three things over the course of a year and a half's time. I thought, uh, I thought, wow, this is this is this is the right way to do this. I'm going to get there, and and I'm going to get there, and and then from there, I, I've. I've been extremely confident in the in the approach, even when somebody calls up and says, "No, I'm not doing business with you because I'm not paying you to to manage money or write a plan or anything like that." The business plan moving forward, I do have to take some time as this new RIA uh, entity. I have to understand compliance, as I said earlier. Uh, I think back to one one life insurance remnant, if you will, which is if you're not growing, you're dying. I do want to grow. I, I do. And that's where it's going. I, I I do want to find those advisors that are looking to retire. And I now work with clients all over the country because of purchasing other advisors' businesses or even clients moving. So I, I think it goes from here to I have to focus internally on the infrastructure because I don't want to grow and not take take the time to be sure that I am working with the people that are already clients and perfecting the client experience that they have with Tranquility Financial Advisor. That is that is key to the future. Perfect how I'm doing it now as much as you can because it's always under under construction. Never done. Yeah, uh, we could always work 24 hours in this job. Always. I, I know everybody listening knows knows what I'm talking about there. So it's perfect the client experience so that I can then go. Uh, replicate that through who knows how many households with people that are here that that CFP hire that I mentioned in the office and and working with those external efficient 
virtual or, or remote assistants and res- remote companies that are out in the world. There's so much talent out there. I want to go find it and and build it, build it from here out there. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is you know, even just the word success means different things to different people. And so you, you, you built this successful firm over, over 25 years, the, you know, a hundred million under management, a 63% profit margin. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I would say a good night's sleep, Michael, in the way that I'm doing business with, with the people that choose to work with me and, and really being as good as I can for them. I, the success is in the fact that I, I can lay my head down and know that, that I have had a conversation with someone that needed the advice and I delivered the advice to them or could direct them to someone that could properly advise them. I feel very successful that I am willing to say to someone across the table from me, I'm not the person that you should be doing business with, but I know the person you should be doing business with, and I'm going to get you to that person. So the from a business standpoint, the lack of a need to look across the table and say, I've got to get this person as a client. Instead, it's I've got to get this person here or to the right person. And then personally, it's 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 the 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 piece of knowing that uh, I take good care of a uh, of a nice family and uh, I've I've got really good friends and uh, I've got friends in the in the advisory business and I and I just love that. I that's a success to me that I that I have other financial advisors that I count amongst my very best friends. I love that framing at the end of just getting to the point in your business where you can say I I don't I don't need this client. Like I don't have to get this client to the point that I'm going to push to work with them, even though they're perhaps not really the right fit that, you know, at the end of the day, there's so many clients out there. There's so many opportunities out there. There's a lot of other advisors. Like it's okay just to send someone who's not a fit to another advisor for whom they're a better fit and, you know, wait for your next at bat to get the client who's the right fit for you. Yes, sir. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Lou, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, truly a pleasure to take a walk down memory lane. I I, 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 I hope it's helpful uh, for those that have been there and for those that are going there as well. Well, amen. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the journey. Pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.